Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And, uh, kind introduction. I, it's really a pleasure to be here and uh, to share with you this, which is uh, a very exciting from my point of view story because uh, uh, I was introduced to, to microvesicles by a colleague in the pharmacology department and uh, she had a really hard time to convince me that this kind of entities actually exist. So the story starts uh, uh, really uh, almost with a fight. But uh, let's do some homework. What are microvesicles? It's a whole world which is exploding, especially in cancer, uh, uh, where uh, it's, it's really explored from any point of view. I have a nice movie, uh, hopefully not with the, the sound. Okay. Of course not. So basically all the cells in the body are able to release microvesicles as a mean of communication. There are some that do it more, some do it less. Uh, basically there are two different types of vesicles that you can distinguish on the basis of their size. Everyone knows exosomes which are small and homogeneous and then there are shed vesicles which are really big. The genesis is completely different because exosomes are born by double invagination and uh, uh, then they release outside. So they take out pieces of the cytoplasm in this way. Well, shed vesicles are really born by the budding of the plasma membrane. 
of a completely different biology behind. Um, and also are very heterogeneous. For some reason that I have not understood really, they are able also from solid tissues to get into biological fluids. So you can detect them there. And inside, you can find basically everything you would expect. So proteins, nucleic acids, metabolites, proteins, messenger RNAs, microRNAs, whatever you look for. Bioactive lipids in the membrane. Uh, it has been already demonstrated, at least in some uh, experimental settings, that they are able to transfer their content and influence basically a lot of biological processes, including, uh, uh, of course, in cancer, metastasis, angiogenesis, but immune response. There are lots of figures out that you can see. The fascinating point, from uh, uh, especially for the clinical neuroscientists, is that their content reflects that of the cell of origin, which is interesting for the oncology, but also for the clinical neurologist, because we are dealing with cells we can't directly access. So, unless with with the, with the so very, how big are the, of the very invasive the, 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 um, the uh, ones that, it, that pop out bleeding. Yes. How big are they? Uh, they can range from as little as 220 to 250 nanometers up to a micron and a half. Uh, pretty big. This is a very talented student in my lab who is able to do these cartoons. Yeah. And so <laughs> uh, I, I, I asked him if he wants to be the netter of today, <laughs> of these times. Uh, so I resume the differences in a schematic uh, way. Uh, so exosomes come from multivesicular bodies. Their biology is at least known, not everything is known, but at least we know uh, uh, how they are generated. So-called ectosomes, and, and uh, nomenclature is an issue. Ectosomes, shed vesicles, but for example, for urologists that have been studying them for a, a certain number of years now, they are called prostasomes, because they have also always called them prostasomes, and so for them it's prostasomes. So, these are bigger and are, are, are born by bonding. Some of the features are resumed here. Exosomes smaller, uh, homogeneous, very homogeneous, very homogeneous population. There are markers for exosomes, like for example, tetraspanins, and you can easily recognize them by staining them with the antibodies against CD9 and CD63. CD9 works especially well in mice, CD63 in humans. While shed vesicles, uh, bled from the plasma membrane, they are an XM5 positive because phosphatidyl saving flips. Uh, this is interesting because in the first work I was involved, uh, Claudia Verderia and her group characterized, I, I think we are going to see it in a little bit of detail later on, that they are dependent on acid sphingomyelinase, which is a crucial enzyme on the pathway of the synthesis of sphingosines. And Sphingosines control membrane fluidity, so it makes a lot of sense, of course. And they can be induced, and this we also will discuss this, uh, by um, stimulation with ATP, so the most common danger signal, through the P2X7 receptor, this in glial cells. We are now narrowing down to the cells of interest, of course. In another cartoon that I asked him to make, Bruno showed that uh, Conceptually, all the cells 
all the players in the brain are able to release vesicles and we have evidence for that. So uh, astrocytes, neurons, oligodendrocytes, but today I will deal especially with those released by microglia and there is a specific reason for that. So this is not a cartoon. This is a real scanning electron microscopy of a rat microglia cell stimulated with ATP. And this is one of the first pieces of evidence that convinced me that microvesicles really do exist. But at this point, I was still convinced it was an in vitro artifact and not something that was uh, really there in biology, in, 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 in live cells. And the, the story starts from here. Uh, as I said, in 2009, we published this paper. Claudia Verderio, actually, was a, a co-author on this paper. Uh, where we show that through the purinergic receptor P2X7 uh, gives rise the, the signaling through this receptor to a cascade of events that goes through classical kinases that translocates acid sphingomyelinase to the plasma membrane. And uh, in this paper, we actually showed that IL-1-beta, which you know has a non-classical way of uh, uh, secretion, actually was released 80% of it in uh, enveloped in this in these vesicles. The reason why uh, you don't realize when you make a normal ELISA on glial cells is simply that these structures are very fragile. And this is also an issue, and I will come back to that because it poses a technological issue. Meaning that with reason throwing they disappear, but even leaving uh, long enough the soup on simply at room temperature they will disappear. So in my mind they uh, uh, have some features of their uh, how do you call them, soap bubbles, that will leave for a certain time and then spontaneously. In fact, when I was convinced of their existence, which happened at the time of this experiment, when, when we finally got with Claudia into a bed, and I said, okay, I think they don't exist. It's an artifact you produce in detail. If they exist, we should find them in biological fluid which was absolutely not true, but I thought I will, was going to win the bet. And we made an electron microscopy of CSF, and we found them. It was plenty of them. It was full of vesicles. And vesicles of any origin, as I said, in the healthy CSF of both rodents and humans, you can find vesicles that you can uh, stain with antibodies for neurons, for oligodendrocytes, for astrocytes, and for microbial. So with myeloid markers, this is why they are called myeloid, because of course you cannot differentiate them, for example, from other myeloid cells, macrophages, in, especially in disease uh, uh, CSF. Myeloid uh, microvesicles will account for more or less 50% of them. So they were already the majority during uh, uh, in, in a healthy, let's say, in a CSF from a healthy donor. And we also, uh, uh, made immunogo to be electron microscopy to be pretty sure, really sure that we are looking at uh, at uh, at microvesicles. Um, the first uh, obstacle to, to, to interrogate uh, uh, samples from the clinic was technological. You can't perform an electron microscopy on each and every uh, CSF sample. Uh, so what we did uh, was to struggle to set up a flow cytometry, uh, cytometry assay, which has huge limitations. 
The first of which is that, of course, flow cytometry is a technique that relies on light, and uh, so you can't detect anything which is below the wavelength of light. So nothing that you can see that is below 300 nanometers. So we are absolutely uh, aware that we are only looking at the bigger ones. Probably shed vesicles. We don't see the exosomes. With flow cytometry, you can't see exosomes because they are too small. The second is that the second issue that we tried to solve with this technique was also that in any case you are going into a range of sites where, especially when you use fluorescence, you can have events that are due to dust, to aggregates, to bodies that have autofluorescence. So we used, <coughs> we, we, we resolved to use uh, IV4, isolecting before, because there is a sugar, Melilios, which is able to displace specifically the binding of IB4. So we could check every time for the specificity of the binding and be sure we are not looking at uh, uh, dirt. IB4 being a marker for the, the microglia. Yes, for microglia. Some of these people might not know that. Okay, IB4 is a very commonly used marker for microglia. It stains uh, different, you might, you might confound with uh, IBA1, which is a calcium channel, which is especially upregulated by activation. IB4 is pretty stable and is uh, uh, staining all uh, microglia, but also macrophages. So, and, and not only, there, there are other cell subtypes which have a weak positivity for IB4, and this will come in the discussions with, with the referees many times. So, uh, the story that I'm going to tell you today is especially about uh, uh, Alzheimer, because there we have also some hint on some uh, uh, functional uh, uh, role for these, uh, for these structures. And, and the paper is so recent in Annals that uh, the reason for being in Annals is that Brain never takes my papers. I know, I know, I know, just joking. Uh, um, and, uh, and it's even got mentioned in, uh, in, uh, in the news of, of uh, nature reviews in neurology. I, I take you really through the main findings. I'm not going to make a journal club of the paper. So, uh, uh, because I'm, 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 I'm more happy to discuss what, what is ongoing and, and, and where we are going from here. Uh, the main finding is that applying this flow cytometry assay, we found an increase of these structures, simply an, an increase in number okay, of these structures in several uh, pathological conditions. We had already published in 2012, uh, always in annals, that uh, uh, it, there was an increase in the CSF of uh, multiple sclerosis patients. While uh, uh, we, we, we kept for our own, uh, as a badly take, uh, kept secret, that also the, the neurodegenerative patients had. So my cognitive impairment, because I know it's not so easy, any definition because right now we also classify them with a CSF uh, biomarker, so probable AD and so on. But uh, uh, it was interesting at the time because we have some findings on, on, on MCIs. Uh, Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal dementia, which is a story we haven't told yet. This is unpublished data. 
uh, on the frontal temporal dementia because, you, of course, you immediately notice that there are two different groups, and I will tell you something about this, and, uh, and then some, some controls. You might, uh, uh, normal fracture hydrocephalus are not normal, as you can see, because they are slightly increased. This is a logarithmic scale, of course, so you, you notice that even the difference are, and there is a, a certain, a huge, I would say, overlap. When they are increased, they are increased logarithmically. Um, healthy controls are people undergoing spinal anesthesia for uh, orthopedic surgery mostly, and they are matched for, for age. And um, this is also very trivial homework. We made uh, uh, the comparison with other CSF biomarkers, and for example, we found no uh, uh, correlation with beta amyloid levels, so inverse correlation, the, the higher the microvesicles, the lower the beta amyloid, no way. We found a decent correlation uh, with tau and phosphotau. Uh, we found a good correlation with the homocysteine blood levels, and among many cytokines we tested in the CSF, you know cytokines are a terrible by market. What's wrong? Uh, if you want to do just press. Just press, uh, restart the, uh, so if you press cancel. Okay. Uh, among many other cytokines we tested, you know, as I, I was saying that cytokines are a terrible minor, uh, uh, marker in the CSF in the blood everywhere because they are very unstable. Nevertheless, IL-6 has some, some relation. The, the, the very interesting uh, uh, connection we found was that in this case we examined a, a subgroup of this cohort of Alzheimer patients had non-conventional MRI studies performed by Federica Gosta and she has published a lot on, on the imaging of Alzheimer's. In particular, when you, when, when you make mean, mean diffusivity of, the, the main finding we had was that mean diffusivity in the white matter of MCI patients was strictly correlated in some pathways, uh, especially those projecting from the limbic system to the anterior areas uh, uh, within, within, with a number of microvesicles. And uh, I'm, 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 I understood from Federica that mean diffusivity can be measured in several different ways. When you measure the radial one, this has especially uh, a connection with myelin. So the deduction for the uh, neuroradiologist is that the number of microvesicles is connected with the destruction of white matter tract that has already been described in Alzheimer's disease. It might be surprising, for, for, at least it was for surprising to me, but uh, that, that white matter tract are damaged in Alzheimer's. So that brought us back immediately to a paper we had published one year ago with Claudia Verderio. Is there something else I can do? Yeah, sure. Should stop them. Okay. Thank you very much. My computer was not working at all, so I'm very grateful because you're looking at the seminar thanks to his computer. Um, we published one year ago this, uh, this, this paper in cell death and differentiation with this finding which was um, 
astonishing at the beginning. What Claudia Verde, you know, I'm always citing, I will acknowledge it a lot in the acknowledgments at the end, um, was playing around with microvesicles, of course, she was producing in vitro from activated microglia. She was convinced, she wanted to have some hint on what was the kind of message they were delivering. So she was throwing microvesicles onto neuronal culture, slices, and everything to see uh, 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 if the, they had any impact on, on the phenotype of these cells. And at and a certain point, she started to play around with beta amyloid as well, and, and she made this uh, 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 surprising finding. So if you treat this culture, which is 14 classical, 14 division neuron cultures uh, in, in a dish, with beta amyloid, this is perfectly soluble per, uh, beta amyloid in, in dissolving the MSO. Uh, nothing happens, basically. If you, if you treat these cells with uh, microvesicles as well, you don't see anything. But if you put them both together, neurons die. Uh, she used a, a fluorescent uh, beta amyloid peptide. And you can see here that if you, if you put the beta amyloid alone, you can see this kind of staining. But if you put beta amyloid and microvesicles, the fluorescence will all stick, adhere to the neuronal network. And you can prevent this with PRP, so the prion protein, which is a classical ligand for uh, uh, beta amyloid. And you can prevent this, of course, with a, an antibody against uh, so you're saying the microvesicles are now sticking to the neurons? Yes, no, I'm saying something more complicated. I will be there in a second. It's complicated for me because, I, in fact, I omitted cowardly the, the biochemical slides because I have a hard time explaining them. But uh, <laughs> I will tell you the concept I got from this paper. I'm a co-author here also. Uh, so I should know everything, and I do know in theory, but I'd rather talk about my experiments. Um, in, in, in here, you can see uh, that the normal culture is stained for, for uh, the postsynaptic density protein for beta 3 tubulin for the uh, glute transporter, which is a presynaptic marker. And this is how the, the network looks like uh, uh, when it is healthy. And this is how it looks like after really uh, only 15 20 minutes of treatment with the combination of uh, amyloid beta and microvesicles, it gets destroyed pretty rapidly. Um, the main message of this paper, which is only in these biochemical slides that I omitted, is that uh, if you both use uh, very soluble abita, completely solubilized abita, or fibrillary abita, and you put it in the presence of microvesicles, uh, you change the equilibrium and you produce the toxic oligomers. Okay? And this is the reason for uh, killing the neurons. Kleiner uh, did a very difficult experiment. So, because I suggested they are trying with crashed uh, microvesicles to see if it's the content or simply something else. What she did was to evaporate the lipids and then make them re 
as missiles again, devoid of plasma of, of uh, plasma proteins, so and and devoid of the original content, and those lipids, but not structural lipids. So like stru classical structural lipids of the plasma membrane that you use in liposomes, only those lipids would recapitulate exactly this phenomenon. So the main message of this paper is that the bioactive lipids of microvesicles are able to catalyze the formation of uh, uh, toxic oligomers. If you go into the literature of Alzheimer's, you will find that this is not really surprising because that the lipids are able to catalyze the formation of toxic oligomers was already around. But here, there is a nice source of these lipids because, of course, it makes a lot of sense at this point that uh, uh, that activated microglia can be the source of this. Of Does this it have to be microglia? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. It could be. But microglia is the main producer of, my, of these microvesicles in the brain, so it's the main source of it. So, in fact, and what has this to do? With, uh, with the white matter trap? Well, it is already well known, and, and we have shown also, that the toxic oligomers, the key neurons, very specifically kill oligodendrocytes as well. And there is a reason for it, because they go through the NMDA receptor and both have them. Well, astrocytes, for example, are divorced and, and are fine. Okay? So, uh, if these are the players in the game, so we have the uh, uh, beta amyloid plaque, we have the, the happy, this is Bruno again, in a new interpretation of uh, uh, in, in this drawing, the happy microglia ramified, uh, then a, a projecting neuron that goes from, let's say, the hippocampus or the limbic system to frontal areas. And this is the model we proposed that. Uh, uh, when microglia activates, becoming amoeboid and releases a lot of microvesicles, suddenly these uh, small ninja stars, so the toxic oligomers, are formed, and they will kill the neuron. They will also, uh, of course, uh, in this process, uh, we know there is another player we are not taking account, which is uh, tau and phosphor-tau accumulation. Um, Nevertheless, we'll kill also the uh, oligodendrocytes. This will cause the anterograd degeneration of uh, the fibers. And uh, you know what happens when a, a fiber degenerates. In the target area, microglia will activate. And this will restart the process all over. So we suggested in the discussion that this may be one of the many reasonable mechanisms by which uh, the disease is typically spread. And, and this also would explain why this is especially true in, in early uh, Alzheimer's and MCI, because this is a starting mechanism when, it, when, you, when, you, when you get to uh, uh, established Alzheimer, uh, the frontal areas are always uh, pretty involved already. Okay. Uh, I was owing you. Uh, uh, this is an unpublished result. It's on, on frontotemporal dementia to stay in the in the clinical uh, uh, 
on the, on the very clinical side, because now we are going a little bit on, into the biology. Uh, but before going into, into this, I, I want to show you this. This is one year ago, so we are still accumulating new patients. And so I warn you that this is might be changing because this was a stochastic distribution. Nevertheless, I was uh, very impressed by this distribution because this is the clinical, uh, 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 let's say, forms of frontotemporal dementia, which are really stratified by the number of uh, microvesicles. So, semantic dementia, non-fluent progressive aphasia, behavioral, and uh, logopenic progressive aphasia. Uh, the two populations that you were looking at grossly were semantic behavioral FTD in, in the other slide that I've shown. Um, why? It's always the tauopathy, some pathogenic mechanism underlying these this different clinical phenotypes should be the same. Nevertheless, if you go in the very recent literature, in fact, they were showing that the semantic forms of FTD are more inflammatory. And this might very well be reflected by the number of microvesicles that at the end have no disease specificity. They are the marker of a process, like the fever of the CSF or the fever of microglia. You measure the activation. It's not specific for AD. It's not specific for FTD. And is there any um, evidence for, for uh, differentiation of white matter damage in those two forms of dementia? This is a very nice question, and, and the answer, and I, I think I will have many of these answers if I don't know. Uh, but but uh, absolutely, I will ask Federica, who is making the analysis uh, of this patient. I'm sure she already she she is making non-conventional uh, uh, MRI analysis on these patients, and so if there is, uh, I'm sure we. Have, we are right now in the process of putting together the database uh, of which microvesicles is just one item and, uh, and in the process of seeing if we can find something similar to what we found in our time. But the question is very well, the point is very well taken. Thank you. So let's, in, in the next so 15 minutes or so, 20 minutes, I will, I will try to go through uh, 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 issues that are currently open uh, uh, and that we are trying to address more or less. So detection technology, you understood, is an issue. It's really an issue. Um, actually, uh, there are a couple of biotechs in the world because not of because in, in neuroscience, but as you as you understood in oncology, this is going to be they call it uh, the illiquido biopsy because most uh, uh, solid tumors, you release massive amounts of microvesicles, and of course, if they reach the circulation, you could ideally make a, 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 a diagnosis of a recurrence, for example, or even of a, of a primary tumor simply by a, a, a blood test, uh, if you are able to detect them and to give them an identity, of course. So, uh, that there are a couple of, of companies proposing machines, but uh, they are really not at, at, at the level of... One is based on uh, the diffraction of light and proposes also uh, a, 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 the detection by fluorescence, so you can add an antibody, but it's very 
uh, inefficient. And the other one is based in Oxford. And I thought it was actually a very, very clever idea because they used the, the system uh, that you use in a cell counter, the Coulter system, uh, sized for, nano, for nanoparticles. But the instrument gets clogged all the time. And uh, <laughs> they, we had a demonstration in our own lab. They were very upset that we didn't buy the machine. But I, I thought it was a, a non-mature technology yet. So, and, and this paper resumes uh, very well all the difficulties and comes to the conclusion that at the end, flow cytometry, for the time being, is <laughs> the most reliable technique. So I was very released, relieved when I, when I heard this. But we are using a lot electron microscopy. We have a new laboratory in Lecce, which is close to uh, the na uh, Italian Nanotechnology Institute and uh, also the Institute for uh, Materials. And they have a marvelous electron microscopy facility. And uh, so we are trying to learn something. This is a, an electron microscopy uh, made in uh, liquid nitrogen. Uh, so you keep the shape pretty pretty well. These uh, clear areas, uh, light areas, um, might be simply an artifact from the from the electrons, uh, the electron beam. Nevertheless, when you see this kind of structure in, in electron microscopy, there are special protein structures beneath the membrane. So it might be uh, uh, meaning something. And we are also performing Raman spectroscopy by electron microscopy where you can identify uh, uh, proteins if you know the Raman uh, uh, spectrum of that precise uh, protein. And we have some candidates we want to identify in the plasma membrane already. Uh, this is just to show you another issue that, of course, especially in biological fluids, they very often come in aggregate, and this makes detection and, uh, and enumeration really, really uh, uh, difficult. Nevertheless, we try to see and uh, uh, if there are, uh, this is uh, all microvesicles produced in vitro by a human microglia cell line, which is called CHME5. Um, if there are differences, for example, when we polarize cells, uh, so if we keep them uh, uh, non-stimulated or if we stimulate them with cytokines. And the reason I'm telling this uh, is because we found a very interesting finding. In the meanwhile, we are also setting up with, with a specialized software company a, a software for the automated recognition. If we have to surrender to electron microscopy, at least we want it to be automated. <laughs> Otherwise, it's going to be a nightmare. So uh, I, I'll, I'll give you here some hints on the data that we are producing to understand better the biology. And I have told you about, and this is mostly the work of uh, Federico Colombo, a PhD student in my lab. <coughs> I told you about the effect of increasing microvesicles after the stimulation with ATP. And I'm going to show you a movie in, in where I really want to show you uh, how, how this works. It's another movie that convinced me that they are real and not something uh, uh, so ghosts. Uh, but also if you stimulate them, both with pro or anti-inflammatory, so interferon gamma or IL-4, 
you will induce a release. These experiments are done in the very same conditions, which is the following. You take your culture, you take away the, the medium, and uh, because you don't want the medium in there, because in medium there are a lot of uh, vesicles, you can also use synthetic medium, which is devoid of serum, and there are no vesicles allowed. We use both, but uh, anyhow, we take away everything, we wash with KRH, and then we apply ATP for 30 minutes. In 30 minutes, you have all you can get as best, as vesicles. And I, I show you the movie in a second, and you will understand. Uh, the same goes with interferon gamma and IL-4, meaning that we pre-treat the cultures with interferon gamma and IL-4, okay, for 24 hours, for typically, or for 48 hours. And then we take away the medium, we put KRH on it, and then after 30 minutes we collect without stimulating the ATP, of course. And so you have this increase. Here's the movie. And this is just to show you the kinetic. This is more or less six minutes of stimulation with ATP resumed in a few seconds. Oops. You see? Now it's a time, and it's like opening a bottle of sparkling water. So it's an immediate early reaction. In a matter of minutes, that the cell senses the ATP. Sometimes, when we when we make these time lapse with the spinning disc on focal microscopy, uh, it's a matter of seconds. You 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 can see almost see the cells perceiving the ATP and starting to to produce these bubbles. There is also, this is not, this is confocal, but it's not spinning uh, uh, confocal microscopy, so you can't see really the, 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 the vesicles leaving the cell, but you can appreciate that it's plasma membrane modification. In fact, in, in, in a lot of, of cases, you have stretching and then the membrane coming back, so it's Okay. But then some of them are released, and this is uh, uh, in real time, it's not accelerated. Okay. Now, the kinetic of the release with cytokines is completely different. In fact, in, if, you, if, you, if you make a time course of the stimulation, you can't find anything at four hours, for example, and you start to see something at eight hours, and you see uh, a peak after 24 hours. So the kinetic is completely, completely different. ATP has an immediate <coughs> effect. Cytokines have a very delayed effect. We thought, nevertheless, that maybe cytokines were working through ATP by an autocrine loop. For example, cytokines can open parnexin channels, allow ATP to get out of an autocrine loop and release them, but then the kinetic was not really confirming this. And, and, and in fact, we also found that pharmacologically there is a difference. In fact, if we work with the uh, oxidized ATP, which is a blocker of the P2X7 receptor, of course we can inhibit the release induced by ATP up to the basal level, but not below the basal. So the basal is always there. While we have very little effect on uh, on those 
with cytokines. Even more striking from my, from my point of view is the effect of imipramine. Imipramine is uh, an old uh, antidepressant which is now not really used in clinical practice. But imipramine is a specific sphingomyelinase inhibitor. A very specific sphingomyelinase inhibitor. So it does inhibit. We have plenty of data uh, uh, vesicles, but it only inhibits the vesicle released by ATP. While it does not inhibit the release of vesicles induced by cytokines. So we are probably talking about two different phenomena, two different biologies. We didn't suspect it until a few ago, and you may speculate that all the reasoning we have made about imibramine, ATP, purinergic receptors in the context of chronic inflammation, I don't know how much this has really to do, because cytokines act in a different way. And when I say cytokines, I say many, because Federico made another experiment perplexing that it might not really be so specific, so that many, many cytokines are able to raise the level of vesicle release. He tried all those. Not all of them do, but those are those. But is this only in microvesicles from here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you do any I, others, I, I others vesicles, do you? We have some experience with astrocytes, but not with all these uh, cytokines, and that's it, basically. And some experience with uh, peripheral macrophages. And you I don't suspect know from other types of cells. Yeah. I don't know. From other types of cells altogether, and uh, as, as concerned monocytes uh, that we that we mature in macrophages in vitro from the peripheral blood or, or from mice, I suspect that it behaves very similar to microvilli. Okay. In fact, in macrophages, we try to answer another uh, uh, question, which is I, I take this up because I basically hate the, the overall content of this uh, slide for two reasons. I think that the concept M1, M2 is, is obsolete. Everyone has understood that there is a, a huge plasticity and, then, and therefore there are a, a, a plethora of intermediate states for these cells. And the other thing is that there is nothing like a dark side in the JD order because of course uh, in the philosophy of these cells, it's always protection as a as a name. As a result, it might be <laughs> not, not really protection. Nevertheless, this is especially true because, for example, if you give LPS to a macrophage in culture, it is M1 in a matter of four or five hours, and if you leave LPS in the culture and you go after 20 hours, it's an M2. And uh, this is true also in vivo. Uh, and in this uh, work, which was done by another PhD that now has left the lab, Lidia Garzetti, she uh, made these beautiful triple uh, uh, stainings to characterize uh, uh, the cells as non-stimulated M1 and M2. So blue is uh, increased EBA1, and uh, red is increased uh, CD200, the MANOS receptor CD206. And, and, and this is the two different phenotypes. I take you quickly through this because this is published data. And uh, she also sh uh, was able to show with some differences that in the mouse, the polarization increased the ability to release 
microvesicles that ATP of course did change the shape and uh, especially at the plasma membrane. What she did was to perform a microarray study on uh, the mRNA content, messenger RNA. The main message of this complicated slide is that this is parental cells and this, I don't know why the labeling is off, and this is uh, the mi corresponding microvesicles, so non-stimulated M1 and M2. And by looking at the distribution of the most common transcripts in the parental cell and in the corresponding microvesicle, uh, we could demonstrate that the content of the microvesicles is not the casual sampling of the mRNAs. So there is a sorting system, which in my mind uh, uh, is relevant because it means that the cell is really assembling sort of a message or is delivering or is getting rid specifically of something it doesn't like. The other, the Venn diagram here shows that despite this, uh, half of the content of each kind of vesicle is common. So there is a certain sort of messenger RNAs that are locked into the vesicles anyhow, independently of the polarization type. And there are another uh, uh, set which is really specific. What is the practical consequence? The practical consequence is that if you examine the uh, content of vesicles, you can uh, establish the phenotype of the parental cell. And this, of course, for a biomarker study, also to investigate the biology of microbial in vivo is really, really relevant. So we validated with single markers, and we came up with a, a ratio that is working in mice, and that we are desperately trying to apply to humans with some problems technological problems, the tiny amount basically of mRNA that we have to use, a ratio, so in black there are the cells and in white is the corresponding <coughs> microvesicles taken in vivo, okay, from a mouse, and uh, as you can see, whenever the donor cell, let's say, is tendentially M1, because in vivo, it's not like in vitro, you don't have the polarized. You have to go by ratio because both of those are always present in a certain balance. But let's say if, if, if the, in this case we used SOD2 as an M1 marker and uh, YM1 as the uh, uh, M2 marker, if the M1 marker prevails and you are in M1 condition, your vesicles will reflect exactly the same situation and the same that when when they shift them to so of course we are all eager to use this kind of approach and tell be able to tell uh, uh, no 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 stop 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 too early <laughs> too early uh, so of course this has consequences to use these physicals as, as biomarkers. Um, this is the last couple of slides uh, that I show you, uh, which illustrate a, a different technology again and, some, uh, and a different investigation which, are, which we are making. This is also completely 
unpublished data because I've shown you that we are trying to understand how they are generated and uh, of course we are learning that it's not that simple that there might be different families of vesicles with different origins and that's a story to be written probably as cell biology not necessarily for Gria but of course we are interrogating Gria. We are trying to understand the message and I didn't show you many experiments that we have performed uh, simply by transferring vesicles on cell culture to see changes in their phenotype. We are doing the omics. I've shown you the published data because it's really too early to show you the proteomic data that we have, but we, 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 we didn't uh, uh, analyze them, validate them especially. Uh, we are uh, uh, sending the samples to make the lipidomic data because I think I convinced you that bioactive lipids might be very, very relevant in these in this structures, in these vesicles. But there is another question that actually fascinates my mind a lot. To whom is microglia talking in the brain? So is microglia talking to other microglia like the forest trees do when, when there is a, 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 when the forest burns, trying to alert and put them in a security, I don't know, phenotype? Or is it talking to everyone, like to astrocytes, telling something to astrocytes or to neurons? And I'm, I'm desperately trying, if you have a good idea, <laughs> good luck, to, to, to devise a, a, a genetic model where you can track in vivo in a mouse uh, with, with markers. We have, you are trying everything, but it's really, really difficult. We are using the Crelog system, like for example, if we are able to encapsulate Cre in the very busy call and have a LOX recipient to understand which kind of cell is responding. On the other hand, just by serendipity, a year and a half ago, I met in uh, this, this physicist and uh, he was uh, dealing with uh, synthetic nanoparticles and using optical tweezers and I had no idea what an optical tweezer is. An optical tweezer is a la laser beam that creates a field of uh, attraction in a fluid able to capture small particles and of course I immediately understood that it was worth Pursuing. And uh, we made this uh, first experiment. So, this is a microvesicle, a very big one, I should say, one of the biggest. So, it's a micron and a half, probably. It's really big. Produced by activated rat microglia. And this is a, micro, a rat microglia cell. And we took this. Uh, microvesicle and we are putting them in contact. So this is a hyperreduction uh, And we're putting in contact with, with this uh, philopodia of this, of this cell. And this is what happens. We were pretty. You can see the cell immediately changes shape, reacts to the contact somehow. The vesicle is captured and surprisingly is transported along the philopodia to the cell soma. What's the time scale on this one? Uh, this is approximately 15 minutes in, uh, in, in 30 seconds or so. When it gets to the cell soma, it starts with this resolution, it's difficult to see, but you might capture some of the movement. It starts rotating. 
like this. And then at a certain point, it disappears. And of course, with this kind of technique, I have no formal proof that there has been fusion uh, of the basic or uh, but we have looked at many, many of these movies, and the impression is that actually it, it, it's eaten up by by the cell. So here we did do, we did some, sorry, we did some uh, uh, experiments with different cell types, and this is also very preliminary, totally unpublished uh, data. But I, I felt I want to share this. So if you. If you look at those that are geared and were transported to the soma, microglia with microglia, it's more or less 84%. While, for example, on astrocytes, it's much less. And to score a, a vesicle as non-adherent, we took them five times back to the cell. And if for five times they didn't adhere, then we scored them as non-adherent. Um, we now have the data also on neurons, and they are very interesting, because if you put one vesicle on a dendrite or an axon of a neuron, it will stick, but it will not be transported to the soma, and it will not disappear. As long as we look, it is sticking there, communicating, who knows? <laughs> but it's sticking there. And uh, you can partially uh, uh, interfere with this uh, with this binding uh, by using annexin 5, which, which is pretty uh, obvious because annexin 5 is, is, is not small, so it might be simply, uh, what do you say, non-rosterico, uh, uh, on, on, on the other hand, it might be instead of specific, because you know that phosphatidylserine is a, a classical ICMI signal that phagocytes recognize and, and use to capture uh, entities which are cell membranes or cells that are unexplified for them. And so uh, uh, this story also is, is evolving. Um, this is my happy group. I've shown mainly data from Federico Colombo, Lidia Garzetti, Bruno Borgiani. This is the uh, fantastic drawer, but he's also a decent scientist. Not as good as, <laughs> not as, good as a drawer. <laughs> in fact, he stopped, he's now working in a company. Dacia Dalla Libera and especially Anna Maria Finardi, which is the pillar of my lab. She's the technician, of course. Uh, uh, and I have many, many to mention, but as I said, I, I'm particularly grateful to the group of Claudia Verderio because uh, uh, she was able, with some hard times, to convince me that the physicals was something worth looking into. Thank you very much.